First Timothy 2, Paul instructs the church, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's pray this evening. Father, I pray as you instruct the church to pray here, first of all, it's of primary importance. We as believers are supposed to be salt and light. We are to seek the welfare of the cities and the nations in which you have dispersed us. And so, Lord, we pray for our nation. I am not that old of a man yet. I haven't lived through generations, but it's been a very difficult time in our country the last 12 months or so. Much division, violence, insurrection, slander, a real division within our country. And so we pray for your kingdom to become, for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so my prayer is for us, for our church and the church of Jesus Christ in this nation, that we would not be divided in the way that the culture and the world around us is divided, but that our confession, our united confession that Jesus is Lord, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, one calling and one hope of our calling. I pray for the unity and the love of the church to be a, a witness that local churches would be little colonies of light and life in the midst of death and darkness. And so I pray for us as a church that we would love one another, especially we would love others who are different from us on second and third level issues people who are younger or older or richer or poorer or a different ethnicity or male to female, Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit, the same spirit you poured out at Pentecost, Lord Jesus, pour afresh on us and unite us, that we might be a witness to our culture around us, that there's a different way to be human. This is what you've called us to be, to reflect the image of the second Adam, the true the truly human one, the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I pray for, as the text says here, for all those who are in leadership, local governments, schools, places of business, law enforcement, medical field, people who have power and influence, certainly politicians, we pray that you would work in their hearts to exalt righteousness. Proverbs says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And so we appeal to you, to your mercy, certainly not because we or any other nation deserves it, but we appeal to your grace and your mercy that you would grant leaders who would exalt righteousness. So Lord, for the current administration and for the new administration rising in our country, I just ask for your peace and so, Lord, we know, even as in Paul's day, the emperor was no friend to Christians, and yet he appealed that they would pray for them. And so, Lord, whoever you allow and appoint to be the leaders of our country, Lord, we pray for them and we trust you. We just got done rehearsing again and again that our king is Jesus. 
That's our King. And so may we be loyal and faithful to you every single day of our lives. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, I would invite you to go to Matthew chapter 3. We are going to begin the Sermon on the Mount. And for you astute Bible scholars, you're like, hey, the Sermon on the Mount does not start in Matthew chapter 3. And you would be absolutely right. But I just cannot, (laughs) I just can't handle not giving the context. I just can't do it. And so before we even jump into the Sermon on the Mount, I think we need to look a little bit at the the precursor to that Sermon on the Mount. And so we'll be looking in Matthew chapter 3 a little bit. And then we'll, there's a real connection between Matthew chapter 3, which is Jesus' baptism, and Matthew chapter 28, where he instructs that all of his followers will be baptized. So we're going to tie those two things together. But because we are going to be exploring in the weeks ahead a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, it's worth a little bit of a, a preview, a little bit of a survey through there. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous you know, sermons ever. It's Jesus' sermon that he preached, obviously, there on the mountainside. But if you go to Luke chapter 6, he preaches it on a plane. This is kind of a paradigm, a pattern of how Jesus, when, it, when, the, when the Gospels say that Jesus went into the various towns and villages proclaiming the kingdom of God, it was some version of the Sermon on the Mount, most likely. Okay? And so this is kind of the pattern or the paradigm of what Jesus uh, was proclaiming in and around Israel at that time. And, and so the Sermon on the Mount has got tons and tons of famous things in it. You know, you've got the Beatitudes in there. Um, you've got the stuff like turn the other cheek. Uh, but the Sermon on the Mount actually gets pretty intense, pretty strong uh, when, uh, you know, at certain points. You know, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It it's, it's convicts you even more deeply than the Old Testament law. Jesus said, you know, in the Old Testament law, it was said that you shouldn't kill anybody. But Jesus says if you're angry in your heart for no reason, for, for no good reason, then you've committed that sin already in your heart and God sees that. And so it's an intensification. And so the Sermon on the Mount, really, you could, and I'll say this again and again as we go through it, what I really think the Sermon on the Mount is, if in fact Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, and this is what he normally preached, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' kind of explanation of what it means to live life in his kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's an explanation of what it means to live life in Jesus' kingdom. And so, you know, our, um, you know, our church vision statement, which I think is here next on the slide for you guys, you know, we want to be a faithful witness to the kingdom of God in Christ. By loving one another as family, learning as disciples, and living as servant missionaries. That's, that's, what the, that's what we want our church to be. That's what really every local church should be. Every local church, as I just prayed, should be a living witness to the kingdom of God. Not perfect. It's in an already not yet stage. But that's the church's role. We're supposed to shine the light and the love of Jesus into the culture around us. That's even in the Sermon on the Mount. In the, the next slide there, you see what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city that is not set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket, but on a stand, and it 
gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I hope you can see the pretty tight connection between what Jesus' vision for life in the kingdom is and what our church vision statement is. Okay? We're, we're supposed to let the light of Jesus shine among us, not certainly individually, but as a congregation. And so the, the Sermon on the Mount is this call to live life in the kingdom, but, and just, just by way of introduction here, I want us to feel a little bit of the weight of it, okay? You know, as I, I said, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is pretty intense. Um, I'll give you another illustration. If someone, you know, Jesus says, if someone takes your cloak, give them your tunic too, okay? Go the extra mile is also said in the Sermon on the Mount. That's hard, right? I mean, when you, you know, none of us have cloaks and tunics, but give double and again, what was happening there was that was to your enemy most likely. You've got Romans who are demanding things from the Jewish people who are supposed to be representing the king, and they're demanding the cloak and then taking the tunic too. It's like, whoa, to your enemy? Jesus says that as well. Love your enemies. Don't just love those who love you back. Go the second mile. You know, the issue of adultery is not just one that's completely on the physical and external but it's also in the heart we've already talked about the connection between anger and murder he's going to talk about giving to the poor talk about prayer life not retaliating not an eye for an eye fasting laying yourself treasure in heaven not worrying about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat i mean all that's in the sermon on the mount and so I don't know, you know, this week, actually, your Bible reading program, you're going to read through this if you join with us. It's, it can feel like a lot, is what I'm saying. And so that's why I think it's really important for us to jump back into chapter 3, and then, well, next week we won't look at chapter 4 because we've got a missionary coming in, my, one, of my college friends from, one of my college roommates. Uh, it's going to be exciting. I'll talk to you more about the end. But we're going to look at chapter 4 the week after that. It's really important for us to see that Jesus is the king who, in a sense, have you ever heard, you know, of course you've heard this, practice what you preach. Jesus is the original preacher who practices what he preaches, okay? Literally, Jesus lived out every single thing in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're connected to Jesus. And so if I told you, you have to do the Sermon on the Mount, but you have to do it in your own strength, That'd be like a burden, but if I told you, you have to, we all together have to live out in the Sermon on the Mount, but we get to do it in the king's power, how does that feel? That feels a lot better. And so chapter 3 and chapter 4 talk about Jesus as the king and his power. That's what precedes the Sermon on the Mount. And so, you know, really the big idea is if we're going to live kingdom lives, if we're going to be a kingdom representation in this generation then we need the presence and power of the king. Say amen. That's what we need, the presence and power of the king to be able to live out the kingdom. And that's exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to do for us, Trinity Church. And so there's a quote here. Uh, the next one. I had a kind of a chance meeting with a, a pastor from up in uh, Wilmington at Ogletown Baptist Church, and he gave me this book recommendation. It was, like, amazing, so... Curtis, if you're watching this, thank you. This guy writes, Most of us who are Christians underestimate the gifts given to us in baptism. We're going to be looking at Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, so it connects. The Sermon on the Mount, 
which is the description of the Christian life as Jesus wills it, will loom less ominously over us if we appreciate the baptism gifts given to us. The church of the earliest centuries reveled in baptism, and that is no doubt one reason for her missionary and moral power. I love that. When we see what happens to Jesus, the title of the sermon you saw there was the coronation of the king. Jesus' baptism is this grand, heavenly, and even cosmic announcement that Jesus is the king. And when we see that we're connected to Jesus through our baptism, we're going to, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is going to look a lot less ominous. It's like, hey, we can do that, not in our own strength, but because of who Jesus is and who he is for us. So let's look at this. We're going to be reading uh, from chapter 3 and verse 13 down to verse number 17. And we're going to see here the identifications of Jesus. All right, let me read this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him and said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, number one. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, number two, coming to rest on him. And behold, number three, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. So what I want us to see in this, in, in this section right here is the identifications of Jesus. First, I want you to see that Jesus identifies with us. He identifies with us in our humanity. He goes to John the Baptist and says, I'm going to be baptized by you. And of course, John's reaction is, well, I know who you are, in, you know, at least in some part. We know John had some doubts, but intellectually, at least, John knew who Jesus was, that he was the coming Messiah, and he had just said, someone's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to hold his shoes, you know, his sandals. And so John's like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no. Let it be so to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus is saying, uh, I've come down to identify with sinners. Not that Jesus is saying, I am a sinner, but he's willing to, in a sense, get in the river with them. I think there's another quote up there. Guys, if you have that. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves it deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river among sinners. Keep going. I think there's another one. From his baptism to his execution, Jesus stays low at our level, identifying with us at every point, becoming completely one with us in our humanity as, in the church's teaching, he is believed to be completely one with God in eternity. This is our Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, on the one hand, he is certainly identifying with us. He's identifying with the, the storyline of the Bible, actually. He's identifying and affirming John's ministry. God had called John specifically to preach repentance and the coming kingdom of God, and Jesus identifies with that plan. In a sense, Jesus isn't above the Old Testament in that sense. Rather, he came to fulfill the Old Testament, John being the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament era. And so, brothers and sisters, 
Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness by identifying with us. And that baptism also demonstrated, not just that he identified with us, but he was going to fulfill the righteousness that we should have fulfilled, that Israel should have fulfilled, that Adam should have fulfilled. When you went to get baptized by John, two things at least were happening. You were confessing your sins. Jesus obviously did not do that here. But secondly, you were also saying, you know, you were coming out of the water. You're saying, I want to live righteously. I want to act justly and walk humbly with my God. That's what that baptism was saying. And so when Jesus comes to identify with us and fulfill all righteousness, he's also saying, I am absolutely committed to living a righteous life by God's standards. Which, again, is going to be very important for us to believe and to um, be thankful and grateful for because we're never going to fulfill the righteous kingdom life of the Sermon on the Mount. But praise God, Jesus was absolutely committed to fulfilling all righteousness. So, the first identification that we see here in this little conversation with John is that Jesus is committed to identifying with us. He's willing to get in the river with us. And that's going to foreshadow what he's going to do at the cross. And he's also absolutely committed to living out God's righteous law and will. In verse 16, though, the identification turns from him identifying with us to then his father identifying him. See the difference? So after Jesus is baptized by John, and as I read through here, I recounted these things, three really rich, deep things happened, powerful things happened when Jesus came out of the water. Number one, it says the heavens were open to him. Basically, that's a statement that the curtain was pulled back. What's going on in the heavenly realm was pulled open. You could see and you could hear. You saw a dove and you heard the voice of God. And so in Jesus' baptism, you've got him now, you know, who he is and what he's going to accomplish. He has the ability to pull the curtain back on what God is going to do on the earth. You could say he's the revealer. So the heavens were opened. By the way, the prophet Isaiah longed for this. In Isaiah 64 and verse 1, he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and reveal yourself and make yourself known and conquer your enemies and bless your people. Open up the heavens, God, and do it. And then when Jesus gets baptized, the heavens get open. Okay, God's about to do that. God's about to come down, open it up, reveal himself, judge his enemies, and save his people. It's the revealer. The heavens were opened up. And then you saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And so it's like, you know, and you, for whatever reason, sorry, just total rabbit trail. I'm just not into those dove Christian cards. If you sent me one of those, <laughs> my wife just goes like, <laughs> but I am now. I'm, I'm repenting publicly. I love it now because I'm, you know, descending like a dove. You know, it's not just this kind of like, oh, that's neat. Descending like a dove is a reference all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 when the Spirit of God was hovering, and that's the word of a bird flapping their wings over the face of the deep. And the idea is energizing, I love that, 
the Spirit of God, listening to the voice of Jesus. As soon as the, the voice of Jesus speaks, the Spirit moves and light happens and waters recede and, and it's all dove-like power. It's interesting kind of power. You know, Jesus is all kinds of animals. He's a lamb, he's a lion. Here the Spirit is a dove. It's spirit dove-like power energizing. And so, and by the way, the dove was sent out with Noah, which is also a new world. After, you know, talk about a, a big change. <laughs> After the, the Lord flooded the earth, he sent out a dove as a sign of peace and that this new world is beginning. Same idea. And so when the dove descends on Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, what is being communicated is that God's new world, his restoration plan, is coming through Jesus, and he is going to bring about an incredibly powerful new world, but he's going to do it dove-like. Isn't that great? He's going to do it in a sense of gentleness. His power is like an upside-down power. If you, you know, he's not, you're not going to exalt it. You know, there's a lot of talk right now, and, I, and it just needs to be said. Christian nationalism is not Christianity. We are not people who get political power and use it and lord it over other people. That is not Christian. We are servants. That's who we are. And Jesus' power and authority is communicated in this age through humble, dove-like service. And so we see here the Spirit of God descending on Jesus and communicating that He's the, the second Adam. He's the Creator and now the new Creator. And so there's like divine deity-like qualities that are being communicated at Jesus' baptism. I mean, the heavens getting opened up and the dove coming down. It's just like, man, that is great. We could just stop right there. It gets better. Then a voice comes from heaven. And the voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's only two times in all the gospel accounts where the, an audible voice from heaven comes and like everyone who's there can hear it within a, you know, however, whatever this got allowed for the sound range there. Two times. Both times, God the Father says the same thing. He doesn't, and the other one is the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. And he has one thing there. He says, listen to him. So God the Father during Jesus' earthly ministry, as far as we know, decided to speak only two times, and he said the same thing both times. And what does he say? <laughs> Sorry, girls. Something I can't say. That's my boy. <laughs> That's, I don't want to be sacrilegious about that, but there is so much joy and delight in the Father in the son in this moment it is that moment when when you know if you're a parent here and your child does something and you're so proud of them and you're so thankful for them not not any kind of like the wrong kind of you know what i'm talking about here you're just like that's my son i'm so pleased with them i can't even explain that's what the father's saying this is my son now when when the bible says something like this is my son you can bet that there's like texture and richness loaded into it and absolutely that's the case here because there's not very many times, actually, 
where the Old Testament says this is my son. Adam's called the son of God, but not till Luke, I think. Israel's called the firstborn son in Exodus chapter 4. And the only other really clear time that sonship is mentioned is with David and his dynasty, the king, the anointed one, the Messiah. So when God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, you will be a son to me. And now if you have your Bibles, because you at least got to flip one time, you know, you got to bring your Bibles to church, because we're a legalistic church, and if you don't bring your Bible, you're not a good Christian. <laughs> so he goes, wow. The book of Psalms, we know, is the prayer book of the Messiah. Most half of them written by David. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Verse 1, plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves. They take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the king. So the nations are raging against God's chosen king. And in verse 7, Psalmist says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That doesn't sound dove-like. That's when the lion comes back later, okay? Now, so when God says, that's my son, there's messianic kingly overtones to that statement the pleasure the joy the love absolutely all of that and woven into that is the anointed king of kings and lord of lords that's why i titled this sermon what's going on at jesus baptism this is the coronation of the king this is when the king is anointed and established this is god the father saying this is my son the king of kings the lord of lords the one who is going to bring about an entire new creation because the spirit of god is on him and he is going to spread that spirit throughout everywhere i'm opening up for everybody to see this is what i'm doing this is my son this is who he is so <laughs> i'm like all right we're going to try to apply the sermon on the mount That's why I wanted to be in chapter 3 before I get the Sermon on the Mount. If that king is your king, if that king is personally and intimately connected with you day in and day out, reshaping the way you think, reshaping the way you feel, guiding your actions and your activities, do you think, Trinity Church, that we have a shot maybe at living out the Sermon on the Mount? I think we got more than a shot. I think we can do it because that king is our king. Isaiah says that the sure mercies of David are given to everybody. What was given to David originally, you know, he was anointed by the Spirit. He was given that authority and that access as the Son of God. Isaiah said there's going to be a day when what was given to David is going to be given to all God's children. And that day has come. And because, you know, it's interesting, Jesus' ministry starts here in uh, Matthew chapter 3 with his baptism and Matthew concludes Jesus's ministry in Matthew chapter 28 with a statement about our baptism he certainly means them to be read in light of each other so if you have your Bibles go to chapter 28 this will be up on the screen so the the first point of the sermon was that we're looking at the identifications of Jesus 
He identified with us in His humility, but God the Father identified Him as the Son, the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Bearer of the Spirit who is bringing God's new world. This next point here, building on that one, is that we are immersed into Jesus. We are baptized into Him. And so Matthew says in Matthew chapter 28, which you guys are very familiar with, Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He's the son from, you know, uh, Psalm chapter 2. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name. I think that's a better translation than in the name. The idea is that there's this immersion into the name of Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Even that right there, teaching them everything I commanded you, that's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Baptizing into the name precedes the teaching and the doing. You need the immersion into the king in order to live out the kingdom. Amen? You need, I'll say that again because that wasn't in my notes and I really liked it. You need immersion into the king before we could ever live out the principles and the will of the kingdom. And behold, I am with you, as always, even till the end of the age. And so, Trinity Church, what you have then is what Jesus, what was bestowed upon Jesus at his baptism, you know, wonder of wonders, miracles of miracles. Anyone know where that's from? Fiddler on the roof. Come on, guys. Wonder of wonders, miracles. I'm a big musical guy. You know, I just do them all. No. <laughs> Wonder of wonders, the same privileges that Jesus enjoyed because of his baptism, you and I enjoy. And I, it's just, it's so good. Can you guys go back to the quote there that talked about them underestimating the baptism? I think it would be appropriate to See that and read that again. One more back. Thanks. Most of us who are Christians underestimate the gifts given to us in baptism. Do we underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Do we take for granted that He's the one hovering over creation in Genesis 1 and energizing the whole thing? That same Spirit was poured on Jesus. And then when He ascended to the Father, Acts chapter 2 and verse 33, Jesus is the Spirit giver and He pours out His Holy Spirit upon us. The Sermon on the Mount, which is a description of the Christian life, will loom less ominously if we appreciate what's given to us in baptism. How about this? Do you ever struggle with anxiety? Fear? In Jesus, the Father is as pleased with you as He is with His Son. Oh, wow. Don't underestimate that. You struggle with guilt? That you didn't live up to the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I didn't turn the other cheek. I slapped them back. You know? The Father 
loves you in and through His Son. He could not possibly love you anymore. John 13 and verse number 1, in the upper room that night, he brings his disciples close, who are representative of all the people of God throughout all ages, and says, Jesus says that he loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. It means he, lo- he could not love them any more than he loved them that evening at that dinner. Greater love has no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. So if you're connected to Jesus, he looks down and he says, that's my son. It's my daughter. I love them. I'm pleased with them. If you have that on the front side of the Sermon on the Mount, you don't do the you, you do it totally differently. It's, it's completely different. You're not trying to gain God's favor in a sense. No, you're you're you know, as, as Lindsay read from Hebrews chapter 12, having received this kingdom that can't be shaken, you're living it out of gratefulness, thankfulness freely offering yourself back, having given that love because He loved us. Let us love Him and love one another. And so Trinity Church, one of the main applications and reminders that I wanted to give you this evening was not to underappreciate what God has given to us in our baptism. Being baptized into Jesus Christ, we have now received the gift of the Holy Spirit and sonship in the Lord Jesus. Turn to one other passage with me as we close. Go to Galatians chapter 4. Excuse me, Galatians chapter 3. This is Paul's way of explaining the same thing in a sense. Galatians chapter 3. In verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're not under that guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ... You have put on Christ. So there's not Jew or Greek. There's neither slave or free. There's neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I, I mean, he says that the heir, as long as he's a child, he's no different than a slave, though he owns everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the time set by the Father. In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the principles of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, identified at His baptism as His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I could add there that opening of the heavens is this access. We have adoption through Jesus. We have access, the adoption He gives us as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, and a, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I just want us to rejoice and appreciate tonight, Trinity, who Jesus is and what He has done for us. He's opened up the way of heaven. He's brought the creational and new creational cosmic power of the Holy Spirit into our lives and He's made us sons and daughters of the living God. 
Just take it in. <laughs> Just believe it, please. Please believe it. Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the church, and I, I will close with this prayer. He prays for them that they would have power from the Holy Spirit to be able to take in the love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And through our union with him, displayed at our baptism. I do pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. That you would expand our hearts. To be able to take in this great love, this great privileges that we have. Sonship and the gift of the Spirit. And I pray that that love would give us such confidence and such humility that we would increasingly become kingdom people, generous people, forgiving people, holy, righteous people, so that others will see our good works and not glorify us, but glorify you, our Father in heaven. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.